Hey, everyone. It's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Tinbi Dermias. On today's show, two debut novels in which antique items give way to suspense. In a minute, we'll hear about the new novel, Night Watching, which is set in the secret room of an old house. But first, a murder mystery set in the world of pricey antiques by someone who grew up within that world. Writer C.L. Miller's mother was the host of the BBC's Antiques Roadshow, and Miller uses the knowledge and passion she's developed for antiquing in setting the scene for her new book, The Antique Hunter's Guide to Murder. She spoke about it with Weekend Edition host Scott Simon, and they discussed the craft of writing a good murder mystery, how to find really good antiques, and, of course, Agatha Christie. Here's Scott Simon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. A new mystery is set in the world of pricey antiques, of great finds, old secrets, and a very British murder. The Antique Hunter's Guide to Murder is the debut novel from C.L. Miller. She grew up in the antiques business as the daughter of the late Judith Miller of the BBC Antiques Roadshow. C.L. Miller joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. So, have you been in the antique business all these years and taking notes for a murder mystery? (laughs) In a way, I think I've always been writing. I've always been a writer of fiction, and I've always wanted to write a crime novel. And it wasn't until my family were playing Cluedo, I think you call it Clue, that I started to wonder if it was Professor Plum in the library with a candlestick. What candlestick was it? Um, Was it Art Deco or Art Nouveau? And the pieces began to slot into place, I think. Tell us about your central character, Freya Lockwood, because the the novel opens at a difficult time in her life, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. And I'm interested in the crossroads we come to in our lives. She's 47. Her child has grown up and gone off to university. Her house is being sold. And there is a moment of kind of what next? Um, Her mentor has been murdered and she is pulled back into a world that she has long walked away from. And that really interests me that um, people can have second chances and start again. Well, tell us about um, the man who was her mentor who winds up leaving this world under mysterious uh, circumstances uh, because they had a falling out at one point, Arthur Crockleford. That's right, they did. Arthur came to me, I suppose, as a mixture of all the antiques experts and antiques dealers and shop owners that I had met throughout my childhood. And I wanted someone who not only had a wealth of, you know, knowledge about the antiques world, but also had a kind of hidden side and was in the kind of black market of the antiques world too. And so he became embroiled in a world that we don't normally see on the BBC Antiques Roadshow, <laughs> which led to his murder. 
Mercy, I, I, I nevertheless cherish something that he told Freya in her recollections. Uh, shows her a Japanese porcelain plate that had been repaired with gold and tells her, most of us have been broken one way or another. We don't need to hide the scars, for they make us who we are. I think I'm going to tell that to everybody for a long time. Oh, I love that. And I, I think it's something I believe too. I think that as we go through life, things happen to us that, you know, maybe break us a little or hurt us. And these things sort of have to be embraced and they become part of who you are. So I love that moment of when, you know, he was talking to Freya when she was a child at 12 years old and she'd lost her parents and he was saying to her, it's okay to be a bit broken because there is a world beyond. Also little, um, I guess what I'll refer to as nuggets of, of wisdom from Arthur Crockleford at the beginning of each chapter. Can you tell us if these are true or not to find the best deal at an antiques fair always turn left because everyone else always turns right? <laughs> it's so funny you picked that one. That is the one that my mother used to always say. When people used to say, you know, if I'm out hunting, what should I do? And she always used to say, you turn left. <laughs> so if you get there 6 a.m. in the morning, you get there when the gates open and you turn left because everyone else is heading for coffee or they're turning right. What, um, yeah, th th there's a scene at the end. I think a lot of people will find it kind of invokes Agatha Christie because uh, Freya gets... Uh, to confront all of her suspects together at a retreat for collectors. So you have all the suspects in one room yeah, or one mansion. <laughs> that must have been very satisfying. Oh, I love the denouement. I love that moment in Agatha Christie's novels and a lot of the Golden Age crime novels do it too, where everyone gets together and the truth is out. Um, I kind of always wanted to set it in a big old crumbling mansion because... We had one as a child that wasn't very well heated and I kind of wanted that atmosphere and I knew as soon as I was going to do a murder mystery in an old manor house, then I was going to do a Dumuamon at the end where they all sat around and Freya was going to have her moment to shine. Are you speaking of Dedham Vale? Dedham Vale, yes. Dedham Vale is where I live. Um, it's an area of outstanding natural beauty in South Suffolk. And it's kind of a collection of medieval villages that John Constable lived here and painted. So he painted our church in the centre of our village. And a lot of murder mysteries are set around the Cotswolds, which is a different area in the UK. So when we moved here about five years ago, I was like, still waters run deep, as they say. And I was like, all the twitching curtains, something's got to be going on. It just seemed like a perfect place. It's so beautiful that there must be something dark underneath it. I guess that's the crime writer in me. I loved reading your acknowledgments. Big vote of thanks to your parents. Could I get you to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, if it wasn't for them, this book would never have been um, able to be written, really. It was there knowledge and passion for antiques that enabled me to so authentically set a novel mm -hmm. in, you know, in this world. Your mother was a very significant figure in the antiques world, wasn't she? 
Mm-hmm. She was. She was very, very well regarded. And, you know, she didn't come from an antiques background. She came from, you know, humble beginnings on the Scottish borders. So I think she had this massive desire to get people interested like she had been and kind of to demystify and make antiques accessible. And so she would weave stories into the antiques that she holds. She used to collect a lot of blue and white china, so she had shipwrecked china on a shelf in our house. And she, you know, she used to bring them down and I used to run my fingers over the barnacles. And that was just so kind of mesmerizing to me as kind of an eight or nine-year-old. And so when I decided to put antiques in the book, that was my idea too, kind of make antiques accessible and interesting to someone who might not know that much about it, but might want to learn a little bit. C.L. Miller, her novel, The Antique Hunter's Guide to Murder. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Our next book is Night Watching, which is the debut novel of writer Tracy Sierra. What's so great about this book is the sheer amount of suspense that Sierra is able to build page after page all while keeping the reader equally engaged and terrified, but also intrigued by a house that itself has many secrets. She discussed the book with All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly, and they talked about the choices that Sierra made throughout the novel and why she thinks writing horror can be cathartic. If you are interested in getting no sleep whatsoever tonight, have I got a book for you. The opening sentence of Night Watching by Tracy Sierra reads, There was someone in the house. And the tale that unfolds from there pretty much guarantees you will stay up, as I did, way past bedtime, tearing through pages to find out what happens, or you'll be too petrified to sleep. Or maybe both. Tracy Sierra, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, I want you to set the scene. Just describe for us what is happening as that first sentence of the novel uh, plays out, there was someone in the house. This is There's a woman. She's home alone with her young children. And then? Yes, that's right. Um, woman is home alone at night with her young kids. And she sees a figure coming up her stairs and um, has all that fear we all do when you hear a bump in the night. Hopes it's not real, but it is all too real. And it is up to her to find a way to protect her little family and um, figure out exactly what to do as it becomes increasingly clear that this is no ordinary home invasion. I mean, just hearing you describe seeing this figure coming up the stairs, it sends chills through me. I saw where you have described that situation as a as a primal as a universal fear you know the idea of an intruder in your home who wants to harm you and people you love um it's my worst nightmare is it yours certainly i mean i think that is the basis for the whole book is my own sort of fear and anxiety and 
um, wanting to kind of poke at that idea. I think scary stories can be remarkably cathartic, and they certainly are for me when telling them. Yeah. You never name the woman, your protagonist, your heroine. And I wondered, is that intentional? Are you signaling this could be any of us? Like, this could be you? I did that for kind of of two reasons. Um, It adds to the unsettling nature, I think. It kind of makes you question who each of these people are, how you define someone at all, while also being oddly easier to step into their shoes. She doesn't, the the mother doesn't have any great choices when this man who's not supposed to be in her house is in her house in the middle of the night. She does have the very basic one. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you stay and try to fight? Tell us a little bit more about her. Like, what do we need to know about her to understand why she makes the choice she does? I think she is about as far from an action hero as you can get in many ways. Um, she knows immediately uh, that fighting in any sort of physical way, she's going to lose. That is off the table. And the uh, story takes place during a um, blizzard. And the idea of being able to somehow escape out of the house when, you know, you have small children and there's snow on the ground, very difficult. And I think one thing that she's dismayed in herself is that her first reaction is kind of to freeze um, and how you deal with your own sort of physical response to fear is I think a really interesting thing and kind of different in every different emergency situation so yeah she has to figure out how to hide because that's really the only option left to her and tell us where she hides so the the setting of the house is based on my own 300 year old home here in New England And um, like a lot of antique homes, actually, and there are a lot of them in New England, there are secret spaces in the house. Um, We certainly have some in ours. And we also have, just like the um, house in the novel, a secret room behind uh, the fireplace. And so she takes refuge in that secret room, which, you know is uh, not exactly a hospitable place. <laughs> it's tiny, it's dusty, it's cramped, yeah, it's, yeah. Right, it is. But in a way, her smallness and, and the size of her children becomes a strength in that way, kind of paradoxically. Um, you know, she can't fight, but she is certainly able to hide a little easier than she might be if she were larger. And you said this is, you have a room like this in your own house in New England? Yes, yes, we do. We do. There's all kinds of really interesting and fun, you know, little secret spaces. We have sort of hidey holes under floorboards and the like. And um, when we were looking at houses, I I know we're not alone in this because we saw other old homes with very similar things and all kinds of theories about the secret room. Um, And I kind of poke at that a little bit in the in the book as well, the way that um, people are kind of fascinated by that and just sort of love spinning stories around it. And is that part of what inspired this whole story? Is you looking at your own secret room in your own house and thinking, why would you go in there? Like, why would you build it? What would you use it for? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, much like the, the husband and wife in the novel, my husband and I cleaned out that space and kind of theorizing and everyone we had work in the house has, has their own theory, you know, the 
the family we bought the home from, the, the kids were convinced it was haunted. These, these old spaces kind of accumulate theories and, and legends. And it's really interesting because you'll never know the truth for, for sure. Um, or, or how it was used in the past, right? And I think that's just a really sort of fun and interesting thing about, um, old homes and secret spaces. While we're on the subject of the house, it's, it is a very old, centuries-old house in New England in the novel. It's almost a character in its own right. It's got so much personality, and it's making all these noises that are that are informing the action. Tell us a little more about that. Sure. I think um, any parent of small children becomes very aware of every little creak and echo in their house, because if you're putting a, you know, a baby down to sleep, you're in big trouble if that door creaks and wakes them up. Oh, yeah. And certainly in our house, uh, I learned where to walk, where not to, what squeaks, what doesn't. And um, I wrote the, the novel, uh, much of it during uh, COVID lockdowns. And it was at this time where obviously our, our homes were a refuge, but also extremely confining. And it got me thinking a lot about sort of the traditional role of home for women as sort of the, the sphere, but also again, confining and how I really wanted to sort of turn that sort of knowledge of this creaky house into an asset for her, right? She knows this space. She knows where this man is in the house because she can hear him. She knows that noise of that floorboard, the creak of that wardrobe, all those sort of characteristic things that that you learn (laughs) as a parent and just living in a place. Have you ever had occasion to use your secret room? No, we have not. We have not. And I hope I never need to <laughs> for this, Me too. this reason, for sure. <laughs> Tracy Sierra, thank you. Thank you so much. Her debut novel is titled Night Watching. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tinbidermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Todd Munt, Emiko Tamagawa, Sarah Handel, Gabriel Sanchez, Ryan Bank, Melissa Gray, Omkar Kandakar, Kai McNamee, Shannon Rhodes, Andrew Craig, and myself. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network.